Heavenly Father, we pray that we will stand firm for you. God, no matter the pressures of the world, no matter what others may say, we would stand for what is truth. We would stand for what is right, regardless of consequences. No matter what the world may do to you, no matter what the world may say behind your back, we'll stand firm for you, God, because it's the right thing to do, and we won't grow weary of that. And we will reap the benefit one day. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but standing firm for you, God, we will reap the benefit. So we thank you, God, for your ultimate plan for us, and thank you for your presence here this morning. We pray that you be glorified in your holy name. Good morning, Family Church. We are here again. What amazing worship. Two weeks ago, I preached on biblical love. And I noticed my wife was sitting up front, taking copious notes, and her head was nodding enthusiastically throughout the whole sermon. So I was curious, and I was excited to hear what she had to say. So I just nonchalantly went up to her and said, uh, what did you think of the sermon today? And she said, oh, it was great. I loved it. And I said, well, what was your favorite point? And she said, my favorite point was when you said biblical love is expressed when your husband does the dishes. <laughs> so, for now on, I'm going to have to confess, I'm going to have to be very careful and cautious with the examples I share from the pulpit, because I literally have to practice what I preach. But all joking aside, Don Sheldon has graciously laminated a bookmark with the definition of biblical love on it for everyone to pick up after service. Now, I challenge and encourage you, if you decide to pick one of these bookmarks up, I ask and beg of you to memorize the uh, definition of biblical love. Don, are you in here? Done? Trevor's here, her husband. Okay, but tell her thank you for this service because we can all in unity grow in love and memorize this together. But that takes us today to today's verses in Philippians. And if you have your Bibles, open to chapter 2 and we'll be in verse 12 and 13. That's Philippians 2, 12 and 13. And Paul says this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Let's go to our Lord in prayer as we begin today. Holy Father, 
We praise you. We honor you, Father. We recognize that there's churches like ours all around the country today worshiping and praising you. So, Father, I ask that you empower all of us, your universal church, with your spirit to walk in your truths, Father, so we can be a light to a depraved and crooked generation, Father. We thank you that we can come here not worrying about persecution, that we can openly love you and praise you. We thank you for the freedoms we still have in this country. Father, we ask that you continue to let us have those freedoms. Help us as Christians to truly be loving to our neighbor, loving to our spouse, and practice biblical love, Father. We ask that your spirit be upon us today and that your spirit work mightily in our hearts. And it's through Christ's name we pray. Amen. Paul starts, let's go back to verse 12, and the first word he uses is therefore. Therefore, he says, or because of what I just told you, Philippians. Well, what was it that Paul just told the Philippians? Well, if you remember last week, Andy preached on Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And the first thing Paul tells the Philippians in verse 5 is to have a Christ to be a Christ-like example, have the mind, same mindset of Christ, have the same attitudes of Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes on to say, Christ Jesus, who humbled himself, became nothing and gave everything, ultimately suffering and dying for rebels like us. Paul says, now that you have a higher view of Christ, Philippians, a more clear perspective of who Christ is, let that affect your life. Paul says in the rest of verse 12, let's read back and review here. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Paul says, take these truths to heart. The things that you just learned about Christ are not just wonderful thoughts that you just meditate on. It's supposed to be applied to your life, Philippians. And he says, Obey these truths regardless if I am with you or not. Truth number one. Correct doctrine fosters obedience. Truth number one. Correct doctrine fosters obedience. And what do I mean by doctrine? Because a lot of churches sort of are against doctrine or they think it's an archaic word. But doctrine is a very glorious word used in its right context. Doctrine simply means teachings or instruction teachings or instruction knowing the correct doctrine or the right teachings of God's word encourages or fosters us to obey Christ that's a wonderful thing doctrine is not supposed to be set up on a shell shelf somewhere to look pretty and collect dust doctrine is supposed to be lived out in our daily lives 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let me ask you, church, how many, how many works does the word of God equip us for? Every good work work. That means the word of God equips us 
for our marriage situations. The Word of God equips us with the trials that we're facing. The Word of God equips us how to train our children. The Word of God equips us in the trials that we're facing today. The Word of God is for life. It's not supposed to be set up on the shelf. But I would also ask you, how do you view God's Word How do you view God's word? Because there's many today who look at God's word as good suggestion or helpful tips to get them through life. And I will tell you that's appalling. And it's appalling to God because the word of God is for us to labor over, meditate on, and wrestle with, and ultimately obey because it's God's word. And I'm going to have to admit at this point, I am getting old. I am getting old. Some of you may think I'm only 35, but I'm really almost 80. I use really good cream, and I have it for sale. No, I'm just kidding. But um, what I was going to say is I'm really getting old because I remember when we used to use roadmaps to go on trips. Does anybody remember using roadmaps when you went on trips? Now we have the GPS. We just punch it in. But I remember when we would study the roadmap to get us to certain destinations and figure out the best route. Well, God's word's sort of like a road map. The truths in Scripture are to be obeyed and applied to our daily life. Can you imagine if I looked at a road map and I thought, you know, one day I may go to Michigan. So because I'm going to go to Michigan, I might start just studying different routes. No. But so many times, that's what we're doing with the Word of God. We have quiet times every day, and we have to get through our yearly Bible reading, so we have to read five chapters today, or ten, or whatever it is. And then we're thinking, man, i got to whip through this. And then you whip through it, you get through the five chapters, and you're like, man, I did my duty for the day. Praise God. God must think I'm really great. No, it's then we apply it to our lives. Faithfulness to God's word means we're being faithful to God. Or to say it another way, faithfulness to God is learning to be faithful to God's word. Truth number two, submission to God involves obeying his word. Submission to God involves obeying his word. How well Are we obeying God's word, family church? Because it reveals how much we love God. How well are we obeying God's word? Before I go to that, though, I need to ask, are we even spending any time in God's word? Do we spend time in God's word? Because we're not going to be able to obey what what we don't know. And I'm not going to say you need to read God's word because it's going to make your life better. Too many pastors and many Christian books try to motivate people to follow God because of what they can get from God. That is called selfishness. We are called, these people are not following God because they want to follow God. They're they're following the word of God because of what they can get from God. That is not what we preach here. It is like me telling my little son, Lukey, I think he was here, but now he's not. But he, it was like with our little son, Lukey, he's about three, and he has a little brother, Silas, who's almost two. And it would be like this. I tell Lukey, my wife and I, we say, Lukey, if you start being nice to your brother, every time you're nice, we're going to give you a prize. And all of a sudden, Lukey's eyes would get very wide because he would not expect that from us at all. So we decide to do this, and all of a sudden, guess what happens to Lukey? 
He becomes an angel. He starts sharing his Thomas the Train with Silas. He starts sharing his History of the Church ABC book with Silas. He starts sharing all these things with Silas. And by the way, you know when he usually does it? When we're in the room, he shares, and then he looks up at us, and he's wondering if he's going to get his prize. Is that the way to raise our son? Because what I'm actually doing, is he actually loving his brother at the points of why he's doing the nice things for him? Because it's really interesting. Because all of a sudden, when the prizes and the rewards run out, guess what happens? He starts being mean to his brother again. And I'm like, what? I thought he was so much better. But the problem is he was not being nice to his brother because he loved his brother. He wasn't being nice to his brother because of wanting to obey us. And he surely wasn't being nice to his brother because he wanted to obey God. Do you know why he's being nice to his brother? Because he loved himself and he loves prizes. So if he'll get a prize for, for obeying us, that's great, I'll, do, I'll obey you all day long. But likewise, we don't read God's word because it's going to make us happier, healthier, change our marriage, deal with our depression, or free us from addictions. We, we, we read God's word because we're called to obey and glorify our glorious God. Can you imagine the first century church trying to sell the gospel to people like people do today every and all over the world in different churches. Do you know how it would go? Come to the church. This is first century. Come to the church. If you follow Christ, you may be able to be martyred. It's a great, you know, you might be able to be fed by lions in the Colosseum. You might have your head chopped off. Man, come follow us. You can't sell the gospel because the gospel's not for sale. And if churches are selling the gospel, they are not selling the real gospel. His word allows us to plunge deep into the depths of who God is. We learn the mind, the heart, the sovereignty, and the holiness of God, and the grace of God as we dive into the word of God. That's why we should be reading the word of God. Let's continue to go forward because I might explode. Um, verse 12, the end of verse 12. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. How I remember my grandfather telling me, Terry, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It was funny because he would always say this to me when he was thinking I was rebelling against God one way or another. And he would put the holy fear of God in me when he would tell me this. But what does it really mean to continue to work out your salvation? This passage on the surface sounds like I am in charge of keeping myself saved or that I earn my salvation. And to make sure that we interpret Scripture right, I want to give you two guidelines to follow when you're interpreting Scripture because we want to make sure we come to the right interpretation when we're reading the Word of God. So I encourage you to write these down. The first one is learn the context of the passage that you're trying to understand or interpret. Learn the context of the passage. Read before and after and see how the verse that you're reading flows with the rest of the words that the author is actually trying to say in the letter. Get to know the situations that the, the author's dealing with. What's the purpose for him writing the letter, right? That's what we've done with Philippians. You have a clear understanding of why Paul has been writing this letter to the Philippians. But the second guideline is compare 
Scripture with Scripture. How does the verse that we're looking at today apply and and compare to other passages? Because we have to come to a consistent interpretation. We can't have the Scripture contradicting each other. So let's apply the second guideline, which again is comparing the present passage, which is Philippians 12. I mean, Philippians 2, verse 12, the end of 12, it says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I want to compare that passage to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. So turn with me to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Keep your finger in uh, Philippians 2, 12. And it says this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. This is a gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. This passage in Ephesians tells us that salvation is from God. He says it's a gift from God. And he actually specifically says what? We can't earn our salvation. That means God gets all the credit. We can't boast in anything because salvation is all from God. But is it really true we don't contribute at all to our salvation? Is that really true? I don't think so. Let's listen to William Temple. This is what he says. The only thing you contribute to your salvation and to your sanctification is the sin that makes them both necessary. So we do contribute to our salvation. Our sin we contribute to because it caused our Savior to have to die on the cross. God saves us and he is the one who keeps us saved. That is why it says in Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. This passage tells us that it is God who keeps us safe in Christ. We don't have to fear if we're children of God because we have our Father God who is our protector. If Paul was saying we had to earn or keep our salvation, then he would have said, continue to work out your salvation for. Or he would say, continue to work towards your salvation, or continue to work at your salvation. But Paul clearly says to continue to work out your salvation. Paul is saying the salvation that is already inside you needs to be worked outside of you. Inside transformation leads to outside change. Let me be a little more extreme. Inside transformation always leads to outside change. Let's go back to the passages and we're in verse now 13. Philippians 2 verse 13. And it says this, For it is God who works in you, to will and to act according to his good purpose. Truth number three. Genuine obedience involves God working in us. Truth number three. Genuine obedience involves God working in us. Let's read verse 13 again. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his 
good purpose. And that word for purpose can also be translated pleasure. So you could say, according to his good pleasure. Paul says, Philippians, you are not left to your own devices. Let me tell you, family church, we are not left to our own devices. God is working in us and through us as we face life. That means we are making decisions and God is in the middle of the decisions that we are making. God is behind and under our will. John MacArthur has a quote on this and I'll share it here. It says this, Paul presents the appropriate resolution between the believer's part and God's part in sanctification. Yet... He makes no effort to rationally harmonize the two. He is content with the incomprehensibility and simply states both truth. One hand, sanctification is of the believer, verse 12. And on the other hand, sanctification is from God, verse 13. And let me confess, my little brain cannot try to decipher how my will and God's will work in unison, but somehow they do. And that is because God's word tells us they do. This is a tension of my will and God's sovereignty working together. But I will tell you, we should draw such hope and comfort from this because we know we are not left to ourselves. God will get us to where he wants us to be if we truly are his child. That is why verse 13 again says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God moves us. He guides us. He takes us through various situations and it says what? All for his own purposes, all, or all for his own pleasure. I have a clip by John Piper. I don't know if anybody's familiar with John Piper, but he's phenomenal. And he talks about the tension between man's will and God's will. So if we can show that clip, that would be great right now. Philippians 2.12 Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. So, engage your will. Work. Pick up your Bible. Read. Obey. Use your will to do right things. Because God is in, under that willing and doing, making it possible. Now, those who believe these glorious truths about the sovereignty of grace in church history have not been passive. If you ever get the notion that people who believe what I'm teaching right now from this verse become passive people, watch us. We go to the nations. We live where it's hard to live. Stay up late and get up early to pursue God's will. We are not passive. We work while it is day, for night comes when no man can work. We believe Philippians 2:12. Work 
doubt your salvation with fear and trembling because not although because God is at work because there's this massive initiative of our great sovereign gracious God inside of us how can we not live with all of our might while we live I think we need to have John Piper come and preach here. Um, he is phenomenal, man. Okay. But God, God is working in us and through us as we work. That's what he was saying. But truth number four, genuine conversion leads to radical obedience. Genuine conversion leads to radical obedience. Paul is saying to live out the salvation that is already in you. That means we read the word, we pray, we confess, we repent of sins, we grovel in God's grace, we love our spouse, we train our children to be godly, we serve others, we give, we fast, we counsel others with the word of God, we discipline ourselves to be godly, we think of others better than ourselves, all motivated from a desire to love and please God, not try to get something from God. Or say it another way, outward change reveals an inward transformation. Let me say that again. Outward change reveals an inward transformation. How obedient are we to God's word? What about in your homes? Does the word of God reign in your home? Does the word of God reign in your home? And surely I'm not saying worship the word, but if we're not if the word of God is not reigning in our homes, then we're not worshiping God. We need to know the word of God, and it needs to be our authority in our homes. Radical obedience means God is transforming every area of our life. What about you? What about me? Are we maturing in Christ? Because it's seen in our behaviors. What about you? Are you growing in Christ? Am I growing in Christ? Because it's seen how we treat our spouse. Do you know Christ? Do you revel in his love? Do you recognize what he's done for us? Are we motivated by the fact that God sacrificed, that Jesus sacrificed everything for us? And in return, we need to be pouring our lives out to Him. Time is getting short, church. We've mentioned this before. We are going in the same way in Europe, where Europe is now dead pretty much in Christianity. And we're going the same way because churches continue to try to act like the world. And as we become like the world, we lose our zeal to really live as Christ calls us to. And that's exactly what Europe did 100 years ago. And we're going the same way. And if we don't start depending on the power of the Spirit, there will be no church in America either. After service, if you'd like to know more about Christ or you're struggling in your faith, 
Pastor Casey or myself would love to talk to you. I will be up front after service. Pastor Casey will be in the back. And we will spend as much time as you need to grow in relationship to Christ. Or if you don't know Christ, we would happily sit down with you and pray with you. And look through the scriptures so you could actually come to a saving relationship to Christ. And if that doesn't work, we're here every day of the week. You can come here anytime and we will spend time with you. We want you to grow. We want to minister the word of God to you. So as I close, I will pray. But today also is communion Sunday. So after I pray, Sean will come up and lead us in communion. And then we'll be done for the day. So let's pray. Holy Father, we praise you, Father. We ask, Father, that we can depend on your word for our strength and that we can walk in your truths, not because we're just wanting to follow rules and regulations, but because we want to follow the sovereign God of the universe who has given so much to us. Father, help us to have a passion and a zeal empowered by your spirit to walk in your ways and your truth, Father. Help us to be motivated from that and that alone. Help the family church to truly live that way, Father. And we ask, as we take, take communion, help us to take it with such reverence. As we reflect on our lives, we reflect on the cross, and we are so just in awe of who you are. We praise and honor you through Christ's name. Amen. As Pastor Terry said, we are going to partake in communion today here at the Family Church, and we do that every third Sunday. Uh, We partake in communion from a perspective of open communion, meaning that you don't have to be a member here to partake in communion. If you're a believer and you're here, you can partake. Now, Christ established the first communion. The Gospels tell us, in the upper room as he met with the apostles. The first time he expressed to them the breaking of bread and representing that as his body that he would give for his church, for his people. The cup that would be poured out as a new covenant. Following Christ's death, burial and resurrection, the first church gathered together, and we see that in the book of Acts, where they came together often and they, they communed with one another and they studied the apostles' teachings. And what does it say? It says that they broke bread together, often, as a family. They remembered. The point of communion is to remember what Christ did for us on the cross. One of the things that happened as time went along, some gatherings would not quite understand the purpose of communion. They would just make it another task. In 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses this and he tells us that as we partake of the bread and of the cup, he says, In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 29, he says, A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. Why should we examine ourselves? Why should we examine our hearts? 
Because the gift of salvation required Christ, who did nothing wrong, to allow himself to be put on the cross and to die for us who've done everything wrong. We should be there. We should be there. But he went there in place of us. He shed his blood on our behalf. Prior to Christ's crucifixion on the cross, every year, and the reason why they met in the upper room was to celebrate Passover. Every year, animals would be sacrificed to atone for the sins the people had committed. Christ became that sacrifice. He was and is the perfect lamb. So as the ushers come down and and prepare to distribute the elements, let's take some time to reflect on what Christ did for us on the cross, this fundamental component of our salvation, his death, the shedding of his blood, the new covenant that we have, the ability that we can come into the throne room of God. Because of what he did for us. Church, we can't repay that. It's a gift we don't deserve. But he gave it freely for every one of us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the sacrifice of your son on the cross on our behalf. For the body that was broken for us. For the shed blood that represents the new covenant. For us to be able to come to you. For that time when the curtain in the temple was torn. And we are able to come in to your throne room. Through the transforming blood of Christ. Father, as we partake of these elements this morning, we pray you would help us to examine our hearts. Help us to understand as much as we possibly can this amazing gift that you've given us. In Christ's name, amen.
word tells us is Christ broke the bread. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he went on to say, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you again for your sacrifice. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you did for us. We praise you for this time. And help us often to remember the gift that you've given. In Christ's name, amen. Let's close in worship. Stand to your feet and just uh, focus on the words here to the song and just make this you cry here. <laughs>